Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. I don't typically like to court controversy here at the Practical Employment Law Podcast. That's why I don't mention things like my hatred of avocados, or that if forced to watch a Star Wars movie, I root for the Empire. In fact, I call this the Practical Employment Law Podcast because my original idea was to stay away from policy issues and focus on practical issues. So I talk about what the law is and what to do about it, not what the law should be. Those policy discussions tend to get emotional, and I doubt anything can be resolved here. However, that doesn't mean I can completely avoid controversial hot-button issues that people tend to get riled up about. I'm going to talk about a couple of those issues today, so brace yourselves. Do whatever you need to by way of preparation. Splash a little cold water on your face, shotgun a beer, I'll wait here. Okay, you're back. I won't judge, I'm sure it's 5 o'clock somewhere. Let's jump right in. Controversial issue number one, COVID restrictions. Remember COVID? Face masks and vaccine mandates? Seems like it was a long time ago, but it wasn't. And it also seems like more people than ever are getting COVID. A big problem for employers was always the strong feelings everyone seemed to have about dealing with COVID. For every employee who was incensed about whatever restrictions were in place, there was another who was incensed that there were not more restrictions in place. In the end, a great many employers simply defaulted to a we're-following-the-CDC-guidance policy as a sort of a safe position. And it was kind of a set-it-and-forget-it position as well, so I suspect that's still the official position of many businesses. Now, you may have heard recently that the president said in an interview that the pandemic is over. What you may not have heard is that last month, the CDC quietly changed a lot of its COVID guidance. I have the sense that many employers are not aware of the changes. The problem, of course, is that employees who still have strong opinions on the subject probably are aware of the changes, and this creates a potential scenario where employers may be confronted by employees and end up being caught by surprise on the issue. So let's take a look at some of the changes. I'll include a link to the updated guidance in the show notes so you can take a deeper dive if you like. Among other things the CDC is advocating for people to decide, quote, which prevention behaviors to use and when, at all times or at specific times, based on their own risk for severe illness and that of members of their household, their risk for tolerance, and setting specific factors, end quote. Another big change is the CDC's position on vaccination status. The new guidance states that COVID-19 prevention recommendations no longer differentiate based on a person's vaccination status because breakthrough infections occur. The guidance also states that immunity may be derived from vaccination, previous infection, or both, acknowledging the existence of so-called natural immunity. Testing is now reserved for those who are symptomatic or have a known or suspected exposure to someone with COVID-19. Isolation is only for those who are symptomatic and have tested positive, and contact tracing is now restricted to healthcare settings and select high-risk congregate settings. Infected individuals can end their isolation after as little as five days if they've been fever-free for at least 24 hours without the use of fever-lowering medication, but should continue wearing a mask or respirator when around others through day 10. 
On the whole, I think these restrictions are significantly eased from the prior versions. The reactions employees might have to these changes are likely going to be dictated by their views of the prior restrictions. The people who dislike the prior restrictions will likely feel vindicated in their view that the more stringent restrictions were bogus, and on the other side of the fence, some may express alarm that the CDC is allowing people to place them at risk. So what should employers do? Well, here are a few takeaways. First, bear in mind that the CDC guidelines are not laws and they never have been. Employers still have a lot of leeway in controlling their workplaces. However, employers who have simply been defaulting to the CDC need to dust off their COVID guidelines and compare them to the new guidance. If your approach remains consistent with the new guidance, you can leave it alone. If it's no longer consistent, you will need to consider whether and to what extent changes need to be made. Second, employers need to consider what, if anything, they need to communicate to employees in light of the CDC's changes. A final thought I will add is that these issues would best be considered as soon as possible before you end up with warring factions of employees. Okay, are you still with me? Because it's not going to get any easier. If you haven't rage quit the podcast, let's move on to controversial issue number two, so-called reverse discrimination. Let's begin by defining our terms. Reverse discrimination claims are called reverse in recognition of the fact that typically a Title VII plaintiff is a member of a minority group complaining of mistreatment on the basis of that membership, often by a member of a majority group. In reverse discrimination claims, members of the majority group claim that they are discriminated against because of their membership in the majority group. Now, some have argued that there is no such thing as reverse discrimination because laws like Title VII do not make such distinctions, prohibiting only discrimination based on race, for example, without specifying minority or majority status. Regardless, many courts have imposed higher evidentiary standards for such claims requiring parties who are claiming reverse discrimination to provide evidence of, quote, background circumstances that support the suspicion that the defendant is the unusual employer who discriminates against the majority, end quote. Other courts have rejected such distinctions. As an aside, this reminds me of a conversation I had with a successful plaintiff's attorney several years ago. There had been an advertisement by a large corporation that ran in several magazines that was probably part of the company's diversity efforts, and it indicated a clear recruiting preference for certain minority groups in the STEM fields. A lot of people in the employment law world were talking about the ad, and I asked this plaintiff's attorney if he ever considered looking for plaintiffs in the majority groups to bring lawsuits over this kind of thing. His response was that he didn't get into employment law to help majority groups, and I think his view is probably shared by a lot of plaintiff's attorneys. But not all. High-profile issues in the news these days have brought these kinds of issues and ideas to the forefront. And I'm referring, of course, to issues like the BLM movement and critical race theory. The reason I bring all of this up is that it seems like more and more lawsuits are being filed against employers based on their DEI policies and practices. And I'll give you a couple of recent examples. A former American Express employee filed a class action complaint very recently, alleging that the credit card company exhibited, quote, callous indifference, end quote, to civil rights law by terminating him because he is white and spoke out against its racially racially discriminatory policies. The employee sued the company on behalf of himself and potentially thousands of others similarly situated employees. 
The lawsuit alleges that amid the racial tensions roiling in the U.S. in 2020, American Express implemented anti-racism policies throughout its corporate structure that gave preferential treatment to individuals for being black and unambiguously signaled to white employees that their race was an impediment in getting ahead in the company. The complaint alleges that his female manager, who was black, would aggressively harass and berate white employees, overworking them and retaliating with poor performance reviews. He also claims that American Express was aware of her behavior and that she was one of the executives who received financial incentives to reduce the number of white people in her department. That case is still pending. In another recent case from 2021, a U.S. District Court for the Western District of North Carolina awarded a white male former executive $10 million in punitive damages in a reverse discrimination lawsuit titled Duval v. Novent Health, Inc., In that case, the employee, a former senior vice president of marketing and communications, sued his former employer, Novent Health, alleging that the nonprofit medical network fired him and seven other white male executives as part of its diversity push. Duvall was terminated from employment just five days before his five-year anniversary with Novent Health and claimed that he was replaced with a white female and a black female who shared his former duties. Despite receiving positive performance evaluations every year, Duval contended he was discharged without explanation. Now, to be fair, these kinds of cases represent a small fraction of the discrimination cases that are filed, but my anecdotal observation is that these kinds of cases, which used to be a rarity, are becoming more common, and the politically divisive environment that we're all living in today means that this trend will likely continue. The other aspect of this that is troubling for employers is that DEI efforts have become quite expansive, meaning that these kinds of claims can come up in several contexts, including failure to hire, termination, advancement, mandatory participation in DEI training, and access to various programs and affinitive groups that employers offer. So what should employers do? Initially, be aware of the risk. The size of the awards I just mentioned and the media coverage of them mean that more attorneys may be willing to represent these employees, and more employees may consider bringing these types of lawsuits. Also, depending on your tolerance for risk, it may be wise to have Employment Council review DEI materials and programs to identify and minimize risks. I'll end on a very recent news story. Apparently, a company called Twilio announced this week that 11% of its workforce would be laid off, stating that they made the layoffs through an anti-racist and anti-oppression lens. Now, I don't know the details, but it sounds like race was explicitly considered in making adverse employment decisions. That is practically daring someone to sue you. We'll see what happens. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com, and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. 
Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional legal counsel.